Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey, pelvic people, and welcome back to Article 3 in Week 7, written by Abrams, Anderson, Berter, Brubaker, Cardozo, Chapel, Drake, in 2010. This is the fourth international consultation on incontinence recommendations of the International Scientific Committee, focusing on the evaluation and treatment of urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, and fecal incontinence, and this was in the neurourology and urodynamics section. So you know it's going to be in-depth. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a review on terms and evaluation for treatment for pelvic conditions that were listed, and those were incontinence of bladder and bowel and pelvic organ prolapse. This is also a hefty article, so just kind of buckle up. And then just a reminder for everybody, if you are purchasing a MedBridge account, I would appreciate it if you could use my MedBridge code, which is PRRP for Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. It helps to keep this podcast free or low charge, so I appreciate it. So let's get started where they do the lower urinary tract system. Lower urinary tract system is shortened into LUTs, and that's divided into storage symptoms and voiding symptoms. Urinary incontinence is a storage symptom and defined as the complaint of any involuntary loss of urine. And we know there are many different types of urinary incontinence. Let's just do a really quick review. These below are all lower urinary tract symptoms versus urodynamic diagnoses, which I'll discuss next. So types of LUT symptoms include Urinary urgency incontinence, which is the main complaint of involuntary leaking accompanied by or immediately preceded by urgency. Stress urinary incontinence, which is the main complaint of involuntary leaking on effort or exertion or in sneezing and coughing. Mixed urinary incontinence, which is the complaint of involuntary leaking associated with urgency and also with effort, exertion, sneezing and coughing. Nocturnal urinesis, which is any involuntary loss of urine during sleep. Postmictrician dribble and continuous urinary leaking, which denotes other symptomatic forms of incontinence. And then just remember that overactive bladder is a little different and characterized by storage symptoms of urgency with or without urgency incontinence, usually with frequency and nocturia. So now onto the urodynamic diagnoses. One being overactive detrusor function, which is characterized by involuntary detrusor contractions during the filling phase, which may be either spontaneous or provoked. That overactive detrusor is divided into two different options then. One being idiopathic detrusor overactivity and another being neurogenic detrusor overactivity. Idiopathic is going to be overactivity when there is no clear cause. And then neurogenic is going to be when overactivity is due to a relevant neurologic condition. Then there's also urodynamic stress incontinence, and this is noted during filling systemetry and is the involuntary urinary incontinence during increased abdominal pressure in the absence of a detrusor contraction. Onto a separate category, bladder pain syndrome. Bladder pain syndrome is defined as an unpleasant sensation, pain, pressure, discomfort to the urinary bladder associated with LUTs of more than six weeks in the absence of infection or other identifiable causes. 
And then on to pelvic organ prolapse and this article's definition. So urogenital prolapse is defined as the symptomatic descent of one or more of either the anterior wall cuff, the posterior vaginal wall, and the apex of the vagina, so like the cervix or the uterus, or the vault, like the cuff, after hysterectomy. Urogenital prolapse is measured using the POP-Q system, and rectal prolapse is defined as the circumferential full-thickness rectal protrusion beyond the anal margin. If you're not familiar with the POP-Q, take a quick look at it. It's super helpful. And if you go to augs.org, there's actually an interactive POP-Q where you can visually see how those measurements matter and the importance of them. I know many of us likely do not formally measure GH plus PB or any of the other metrics, but visually it's really helpful to see in order to better understand. So just think about it, augs, like augs.org, and that's that POP-Q tool. So then they're gonna go into anal incontinence, and anal incontinence is defined as any involuntary loss of fecal matter and or gas that may be divided into fecal incontinence, which is any involuntary loss of fecal material, or two, flatulence incontinence, which is any involuntary loss of gas. And don't forget to ask your patients that. I often find myself forgetting to ask about gas control with bowel control, and it is definitely a piece of the puzzle. So then we're gonna go and jump into evaluation. So let's review their terms so we know what to expect in the rest of their evaluative recommendations. A highly recommended test is a test that should be done on every single patient. A recommended test is a test of proven value in the evaluation of most patients and its use is strongly encouraged. And then an optional test is a test of proven value in the evaluation of some selected patients. Its use is left to the clinical judgment of the specific physician. And then a not recommended test is exactly what it sounds like. It is not recommended. This section is mostly regarding POP and anal incontinence. An important thing to note is that these conditions are very prevalent and often very underreported by patients. So learning how to tease them out is key. These evaluation bullet points are likely things you already do, but I just want you to listen and see if there are some points you may glaze over, forget to ask, or have found unimportant before that this might shed a new light on. Okay, so here goes. The initial evaluation should be undertaken by a clinician and every patient presenting with signs or symptoms suggested of these conditions. First would be a history and a general assessment. This would include a review of systems which includes the following. Presence, severity, duration, and bother of any urinary bowel or prolapse symptoms. Consider using a validated questionnaire in conjunction to verbal assessment. Effect of any symptoms on sexual function. Consider again using a validated questionnaire presence and severity of symptoms suggesting neurological disease. And then up next in the history and general assessment would be the past medical history. So any previous conservative medical and surgical treatment, also their considered effectiveness in that condition. Coexisting diseases that may have a profound effect on incontinence or prolapse sufferers. So we're thinking asthma, COPD, respiratory problems. Patient medication. We all know those patients who have urinary symptoms and it turns out it's because of a change in Lasix obstetric and menstrual history, physical impairment, individuals who have compromised mobility, dexterity, or visual acuity may need to be managed differently. And then we're going on to social history and within that history and general assessment. So we're going to consider environmental issues like culture, physical environment, as well as lifestyle issues. So for lifestyle, we're going to consider exercise and diet. Then moving on to the physical exam, we're looking at things like mental status, obesity or BMI, physical dexterity and mobility again, 
A pelvic exam was noted to be helpful, as we know. And then they also discussed a urinalysis, as it's really cheap and could show infection, as well as things like a bladder diary. Other items to assess that we wouldn't be doing but we should be aware of are things like renal function assessments, uroflowmetry, post-residual urine estimates, and imaging like ultrasounds and x-ray. Imaging of the upper urinary tract is helpful in some situations. Cases that they would be helpful for include things like hematuria, neurogenic urinary incontinence for like spinal cord trauma, incontinence associated with significant post-void residual, coexisting kidney pain, severe pelvic organ prolapse that's not being treated, suspected extraurethral urinary incontinence, and then children with incontinence and UTIs. For anal incontinence, the article recommends imaging like ultrasound or MRI prior to any surgical interventions. For those anal rectal conditions also, proctoscopy or flexible sigmoidoscopy should routinely be performed in the evaluation of patients with fecal incontinence. Also, colonoscopies are recommended for those with an otherwise unexplained change in bowel habit, bleeding, or other alarming symptoms. So let's understand when urodynamic testing is indicated because it's important for you to know when you need more information for your patients to see if you can continue helping them. Urodynamics are helpful if, one, the results may change management, so like prior to most invasive treatments for ultrasound for urinary incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse, Two, after treatment failure, if more information is needed in order to plan further therapy. Three, as part of both initial and long-term surveillance programs in some types of neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. Or four, for complicated incontinence patients. So what do we get from urodynamics? Like what are we looking for in the write-up? We're looking for the assessment of bladder sensation, the detection of detrusor overactivity, the assessment of urethral competence during filling, the determination of detrusor function during voiding, the assessment of outlet function during voiding, the measurement of residual urine, and also just to reproduce those symptoms and correlate those with the neurodynamic findings. There are other diagnostic tests too, and these are gonna be more commonly used in higher complexities of patients. So things like video urodynamics are helpful in pediatric and neurogenic patients experiencing urinary incontinence, as well as those ultrasounds and x-rays. Another one they wrote down was pad testing. I don't know if anybody listening has seen pad testing done. I've only seen it like a handful of times. It's an optional test for the routine evaluation of urinary incontinence, and if carried out, a 24-hour test is suggested. Neurophysiologic testing is another consideration. These are for patients with peripheral lesions prior to treatment for lower urinary tract or anal rectal dysfunction. So these include concentric needle EMG, sacral reflex responses to electric stimulation of penile or clitoral nerves. This article does not recommend pudendal nerve latency testing, but they do note that further imaging of the CNS, including the spine, if there's suspected neurological disease. So those imaging options include things like myelography, CT, and MRI. Just highlight this in your brain if you get a referral for a patient who has these tests ordered or completed to consider the neurologic system in their treatment plan. Cystourethroscopy and anorectal physiology testing. If you're seeing a cystourethroscopy, which is a procedure that uses a long, thin, flexible 
lighted tube called a cystoscope. This is going to be put into the urethra, moved up into the bladder, and they're looking for infection, narrowing, blockages, bleeding, or even cancers. And that imaging and a CT, MRI, ultrasound are an indication of the following. Pelvic floor dysfunction, failed surgery like prolapse, or a suspected fixed urethra. The article then goes into an algorithm of care that I don't know is important to delve into with the exception to the following understanding and flow of care, and no pun intended. (laughs) Um, General assessment, symptom assessment, quality of life impact assessment, desire for treatment assessment, physical exam, and urinalysis. So that's the algorithm of care. I think we're good with just the overview. So the article then goes into pediatric pelvic floor conditions as well as care, And just of note, it's not in the study guide, it's not in the rubric or in the percentages. I know there's a big push for male pelvic health on this exam. I have not heard of anything regarding pediatrics, so just feel free to reach out to me if you've heard differently. So I'm going to ignore the pediatric algorithm of care and head to the male management of urinary incontinence. Again, this isn't outrightly lined in the study rubric, but I know an increasing amount of pelvic PTs are treating men, and there is a general push for pelvic PT to encompass both genders. And that's a longer discussion that I should boil down to what you specifically want to treat. But I'm just going to go over male urinary incontinence management in the case that anyone feels more comfortable that I cover it. So let's talk about types of male urinary incontinence. We'll start with the complicated incontinence because why not? This includes recurrent or total urinary incontinence or urinary incontinence associated with pain, hematuria, recent infection, prostate irradiation, and radical pelvic surgeries. So these complicated folks are likely to require additional testing, cystology, cystourethroscopy, and urinary tract imaging. Non-complicated urinary incontinence is going to include things like post-void dribbling, stress urinary incontinence, mixed urinary incontinence, and urge urinary incontinence. For post-void dribble, we're remembering to teach that post-void dribble technique where they're encouraging to manually help the urine out with the pressure and pelvic floor training. For all of the urinary incontinence, we're working very similarly to how we would with the female-bodied patients. For stress urinary incontinence, we're going to assume it's due to sphincteric incompetence, so pelvic floor muscle training, bladder training, scheduled voiding, and medications. For mixed urinary incontinence, we're going to focus on the most bothersome symptom first, then pelvic floor muscle training, bladder training, time voiding, medications. For urge urinary incontinence, we're going to presume it's due to detrusor overactivity. So again, focusing on pelvic floor muscle training, time voiding, bladder training, and medication. I didn't really go into the pelvic floor muscle training because they didn't. But then if initial treatment fails, they discuss other options for stress and mixed urinary incontinence being an artificial urinary sphincter or a male sling procedure. For urge urinary incontinence, we're considering medications more thoroughly and correcting a bladder outlet obstruction if there's any found during imaging. If there's no bladder obstruction with urge urinary incontinence, we're going to consider neuromodulation. And if there is a coexisting underactive detrusor during voiding, we're going to be looking at intermittent calfing and medications. So those complicated urinary incontinence we talked about are going to need those imaging procedures that we discussed and then the correction of the anomaly. If you haven't seen individual treated with Botox, it is a helpful option for some at the discretion of the provider. 
Botox shows a lot of promise for those with symptomatic detrusor overactivity who aren't responding to other therapies. For those who are experiencing urinary incontinence due to poor bladder emptying and detrusor underactivity, we're thinking of intermittent capping. For those who are experiencing urinary incontinence due to bladder outlet obstruction, we're thinking surgical management of the obstruction and then alpha blockers or 5-alpha rectase inhibitors. 5-alpha reductase inhibitors are helpful to shrink an enlarged prostate to improve the flow of urine, and these are medications like Proscar and Avidart. Alpha blockers are usually going to be the first line treatment prescribed though, and those help muscles around the bladder and the prostate relax instead of focusing on shrinking. So these are medications like brands like Flomax. Continuing on this medication train, men with overactive bladder are more commonly prescribed those medications that are anti-muscanerics along with the alpha blocker. So brands that you might be familiar with for these are like oxybutynin or Dirapan as well as Sanctura. Okay, hang with me here, pelvic people. We've got a good bit more and I can't pronounce medications really well despite my husband being a pharmacist. (laughs) So one aside I will say is that this article is really great for their charts and the overall visual flow of these diagnoses. So just a thought, if you're visual and you want to stop listening to words after 15 minutes sometimes, I'm actually the worst studying person and I sometimes can listen, sometimes can read. So this article is great if you want to go back and forth between seeing the algorithm and hearing the algorithm. Okay. You might not have those problems though. So circling back to women with urinary incontinence, let's talk about the general assessment regardless of type. We're gonna do a general assessment with a urinary incontinence symptom assessment, a urinalysis and urine culture, cough test or appropriate assessment for stress urinary incontinence, and assessment of estrogen status, assessment of pelvic floor muscles, and post-void residual. For treatment, we're thinking lifestyle interventions, bladder and pelvic floor muscle training, and medication management as needed. Stress incontinence is gonna be paired with an assumption of sphincteric incompetence. Mixed urinary incontinence, we're gonna treat the most bothersome signs and symptoms first. And then overactive bladder with or without urinary incontinence is gonna be presumed to have detrusor overactivity. And I love that they touched on estrogen status. I wish I could mentally highlight and star that for every pelvic PT who is in this field. Then if we jump down into specialized management of urinary incontinence in women, there are more complicated cases. So they highlight that complicated urinary incontinence is related to recurrent urinary incontinence or urinary incontinence associated with pain, hematuria, recurrent infections, voiding problems, pelvic irradiation, pelvic surgeries, or fistulas. First thing they note is prolapse assessment should be performed as well as imaging and urodynamics for those complicated patients. For stress urinary incontinence and then some mixed urinary incontinence, complicated cases may necessitate treatment like surgeries, bulking agents, tapes and slings, and suspension. Remember that suspension is an operation that involves placing sutures in the vagina on either side of that urethra and tying these sutures to supportive ligaments in order to elevate the vagina. Other mixed urinary incontinence and also detrusor overactivity treatments additionally could include things like Botox, neuromodulation, and bladder augmentation. So remember that these are second line if initial treatment fails. 
those who are experiencing bladder outlet obstruction and an underactive detrusor are going to have treatment options such as correction of that anatomic obstruction, so potentially like a prolapse intervention, as well as potentially intermittent cathing. Complicated urinary incontinence is associated with recurrent incontinence or incontinence combined with any of the below, like hematuria, recurrent infection, voiding symptoms, pelvic irradiation, radical pelvic surgeries, or suspected fistulas. With any of these conditions, we're going to spend some time considering referring back for further imaging, urethrocystoscopy, and neurodynamics. Treatment of the pathology and correction of the anomaly is the goal with complicated incontinence patients. Systematic assessment for pelvic organ prolapse is important, and the article recommends the POPQ method. For urodynamic stress incontinence in those with bladder neck and urethral mobility, we're going to see treatment options like retropubic suspension, bladder or urethral slings, as well as non-surgical options. For incontinence due to limited bladder neck mobility, we're going to see options like bladder neck sling procedures, those injectable bulking agents, and artificial urinary sphincters. Those patients with voiding dysfunction leading to significant post-void residual urine, so like 30% or more of total bladder capacity, may have bladder outlet obstruction or detrusor underactivity. And remember that prolapse is a common cause of voiding dysfunction. Okay, so topics that we have left include obstetric fistula, pelvic organ prolapse, and neurogenic urinary incontinence, as well as incontinence in frail elderly adults, fecal incontinence, and neurogenic fecal incontinence. And I will likely be very short with the fecal incontinence, as this week's focus is on bladder health. Regarding fistulas, obstructive labor is the main cause of vesicovaginal fistulas in the developing world. So it's not to say that these don't exist in patients within the U.S. health system, and I'm sure many of you have seen them. Other etiologies such as sexual violence or genital mutilation are less frequent, but just note that you may adapt your care from the management that they recommend based on whatever your patient needs. If you haven't treated a fistula, it's an opening within an organ. Most commonly, we're going to see three types. The first type being vesicovaginal, which is the opening between the vagina and the bladder, rectovaginal, which is an opening between the vagina and the rectum, and colovaginal, which is an opening between the vagina and the colon. Important to first note, is this a simple or is this a complex fistula? For a simple fistula, these have better outcomes, but they are also treated differently. A vaginal approach is preferred since most simple fistula can be reached vaginally. For complex fistula, the article notes that this should be treated within a fistula center by a fistula expert. Most complex fistula can be dealt with by the vaginal approach, but an abdominal approach may be needed in some cases. So then let's talk about what's a simple versus a complex fistula. Simple fistulas are those with a single vesicovaginal fistula. There isn't urethral involvement. It's less than four centimeters and the vaginal approach is acceptable. A complex fistula can include one or more of the following, more than four centimeters, urethral involvement, intravaginal ureters, a rectovaginal fistula, poor vaginal access, and this being a secondary fistula repair, so potentially a failed prior repair. I think of note, while these are categorized as simple and complex, every single fistula patient that I've worked with, regardless of classification, were severely impacted in their quality of life. So while there are classifications, I would 100% avoid using those with the patient, although I've seen them classified in in an EMR system, so that's hard for some people. 
And then we're going to go on to pelvic organ prolapse. So first we're going to assess bothersomeness, frequency, and severity of signs and symptoms, as well as the effect on urinary, bowel, and sexual dysfunction. For urinary, we could further request a PVR, a cough stress test, and a urinalysis. Physical exam is going to include the site and the severity of the prolapse. And then some individuals are referred to endoscopy and a lower GI tract assessment. For those with urogenital prolapse with or without signs and symptoms, the care plan is going to include the following. Observation, lifestyle interventions, pelvic floor muscle training, pessary, reconstructive surgery, or obliterative surgery. For those with rectal prolapse with or without signs and symptoms, the care plan is going to include observation, lifestyle interventions, transperineal surgery, or transabdominal surgery. For complex or recurrent prolapse, this is a specialist management approach, and they don't go too much more into that. I just want to touch on pessaries. I still need to take a course, but I worked in a facility where we were getting trained by our GYNs, and I think it's such an important piece of our practice. Regular follow-up of pessaries is mandatory. Some are going to be left in place, and some are going to be removed and replaced by the individual but a local estrogen is often recommended with them for the prevention or the treatment of vaginal epithelial ulceration, especially in those hypoestrogenized women. Okay, next up we have neurogenic urinary incontinence. So regardless of type of neurogenic bladder, we begin with a clinical assessment. This includes a full history, urinary diary, and a symptom score, a function level assessment, and a quality of life and desire for treatment. Then we're looking at physical exam for lumbar dermatomes and sensation, anal tone, voluntary sphincteric contraction, anal reflexes, and gait. Following that, consider a urinalysis and culture, urinary tract imaging, and PVR. For those with SUI due to sphincter incompetence, we're thinking behavioral modification and external appliances. For urinary incontinence due to detrusor overactivity, we're breaking that up into two options. One, those with poor bladder emptying, and two, those with negligible PVR. With poor emptying, we're thinking intermittent cathing, and sometimes patients will also take those overactive bladder medications like oxybutynin. Without poor emptying, we're thinking behavior modifications, overactive medication, external appliances, or indwelling catheters. These options will all depend on the patient as they go from very conservative to very permanent. With any failure of these options, referral for a more specialized treatment is encouraged. So what would specialized management look like? Let's find out. Neurogenic pelvic disorders are not my forte. Regardless of diagnosis, we're gonna start with urodynamics and potentially those with simultaneous EMG and imaging also urinary tract imaging. Neurophysiologic testing should be completed as well. For those with peripheral lesions after radical pelvic surgeries or cauda equina syndrome, we're assuming this is stress urinary incontinence due to sphincteric incompetence. We're going to encourage timed voiding and external appliances. Less conservatively, we may be looking at these patients undergoing surgeries such as artificial sphincters, bladder neck slings, suburethral tapes, bulking agents, and bladder neck closures. For those with spinal cord lesions from trauma or MS, we're assuming urinary incontinence is due to poor bladder emptying because of detrusor overactivity and sphincter underactivity. Recommendations include intermittent cathing, alpha-1 blockers, bladder expression, so like the crude method, and intravesical electric stim. If that doesn't resolve the issue, then patients may undergo intraurethral stents, Botox, or ultrasound of the sphincter. 
For those with urinary incontinence due to detrusor overactivity, we're looking more closely at intermittent capping or even indwelling. If there isn't a resolution, we're considering more intense procedures like sacral deafferentation, sacral anterior root simulators, Botox to the detrusor, or auto-augmentation. I'm going to pause on defining all of these terms because from the pelvic PT realm, these are not our priority. So I'd hate to go down into more rabbit holes, although it's really fun too. I think our time would be best spent moving on to urinary incontinence in older adults. Now on to frail, elderly, and urinary incontinence. The clinical assessment is going to start with assessment with consideration of relevant comorbidities and ADLs, assessment of quality of life, desire for treatment, and goals. Physical exam is compromised of cognition, mobility, neuro and rectal exams, as well as a urinalysis. Maybe this is just a long article, but for all of these patient situations, it feels like that meme of Oprah where everybody gets a urinalysis. (laughs) Um, Okay, so then consider also a frequency volume chart or wet checks, especially in those with nocturia. Just an aside, other clinical assessments are going to include delirium, infection, pharmaceuticals being taken currently, psychological assessments, assessment for excess urine output, reduction of mobility, stool impaction, and they note too to consider avoiding treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. I want to re-highlight the stool impaction because with older adults as well as with children, we know that constipation plays a huge role in urinary incontinence. And you see this with um, women and men too. Okay, so moving on, for urgency urinary incontinence, they recommend lifestyle interventions, behavioral therapies, and an addition of medications like oxybutynin. For someone with a significant PVR, we're going to treat constipation, review meds. For men, they're going to look into alpha blockers, assuming there might be a prostate involvement, and intermittent calfing. For stress urinary incontinence, they recommend lifestyle interventions and pelvic floor muscle training. For all of these cases, if there's no improvement, we're moving on to a reassessment with consideration of comorbidity and functional impairment. And then if there's still no improvement, they're going to send them to an additional specialist. Not sure if I mentioned this, but next up is bladder pain syndrome. It's defined as pain, pressure, or discomfort perceived to be related to the bladder with additional signs and symptoms, including frequency or nocturia. We're going to do a history, a frequency and a volume chart, a physical exam, urinalysis, culture, and cytology. If there's a UTI, we're going to treat and then reassess. Treatment is going to include dietary modification, patient education, pelvic floor relaxation, and analgesics. They say if that doesn't help, then they're going to refer to pelvic PT. But my question is, how are they relaxing without someone showing them? I think that's an odd way to put the algorithm, but okay. If formal PT, oral therapies, and intravesical therapies then don't help, they start considering cystoscopy under anesthesia with hydrodistension, assessment of Hunter's lesions, and then further treatment like neuromodulators, Botox, and further pharmaceuticals. And then if there's still no improvement, they're going to consider a urinary diversion with or without a cystectomy. So, I hadn't heard of this, so if you're also wondering what that means, it's a surgical procedure to make a new way for the urine to leave the body, so that's going to involve redirecting the urine into the colon, using catheters to drain the bladder, or by making an opening in the abdomen and collecting urine in a bag outside of the body. And then another option besides that is a cystoplasty. 
Just a side note from the authors, the Scientific Committee of the International Consultation voted to use the term bladder pain syndrome for the disorder that has been commonly referred to as interstitial cystitis. The term painful bladder syndrome was dropped from the lexicon. The term IC implies an inflammation within the wall of the urinary bladder involving gaps or spaces in the bladder tissue. And this doesn't accurately describe the majority of patients with this syndrome. Painful bladder syndrome, as defined by the International Continent Society, is too restrictive for the clinical syndrome. At this time, there's really no true universally accepted term. So we're almost there, I promise. Next up is fecal incontinence, and this will be brief as the article is placed during the seventh week for bladder conditions. So when a patient presents for fecal incontinence, they're going to recommend taking a history, doing an evaluation, medication, and a diet review. They note to address risk factors such as loose stool, toilet access, and medications. They continue to work on bowel habit training and managing constipation, as well as encouraging pelvic floor muscle training and the use of pads or rectal plugs as needed. If initial treatment fails, we're looking at diagnostic testing, biofeedback, and irrigation. Further treatment would include a surgical evaluation. If there's more of a neurologic implication due to sphincter incompetence, this is going to require things like a manual evacuation or an assistive device such as an anal plug. For neurologic conditions from spinal trauma or MS, we're thinking this incontinence is due to cognitive function or sensory changes, as well as an inability to control voluntary contraction. So we're considering digital rectal stimulation, chemical stimulants, and transrectal irrigation. For neurological conditions such as Parkinson's disease, we're going to consider this to be a false incompetence, potentially due to fecal impaction, where we're going to want to focus on fecal disimpaction first. And there are tons more information on surgery options for fecal incontinence and when they are indicated, things like that. Since as therapists, I think it's important to be aware of these types of surgical interventions, but we are not choosing who's getting them. I think I'm going to pause there. The article does go more in depth on surgical interventions for sure, including other things like sacral nerve stimulation, sphincterplasties, percutaneous nerve stimulation, etc., which is great. But 40 minutes in during bladder week, I think I'm going to pause on the rectal rabbit hole. This article continues to discuss recommendations for further research for children, men, and women, as well as specifically within each type of diagnosis. If you have time to read it, highly recommend it. If you don't, I wouldn't stress about it. Next up, we have an article on vaginal weights and its effects on urinary incontinence. And this was originally written in 2002, but they actually updated it in 2013, which is super exciting to me. So both are PDFs. So I'll do a 2002 and an updated 2013 review, and we can see if they had any new findings after nine years. All right. Thanks for sticking with me after that doozy of an article. I'm thinking and kind of hoping that it gets easier from here. But as always, thank you for listening. I really appreciate all of your reviews and comments. And until next time, bye pelvic people.